Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Hi, everybody. Well, I've made it to Mykonos, and the reason I'm doing this podcast earlier in the day, in fact, it's just after one o'clock New York time, so the markets are trading. I'm normally not doing a live podcast during New York market hours, so that might make this a little bit more interesting. I generally wait till later in the day. I think I'll get a big, a better audience or bigger audience at that time. But, you know, I'm now seven hours ahead of New York here in Greece, and um going to be on a different schedule. There's a lot of late night partying that takes place in Mykonos. So I'll probably try to partake in that. And so that's going to make it harder for me to record the podcast later at night, which is what I've been doing on my trip so far. You know, I really enjoyed my time in Montenegro. I mean, I I can't say enough good things about that town. So um, if you guys are looking for gals, any place to travel over the summer, I would definitely put that destination on your list of places that you want to go. It's a really fun place uh, to be. But anyway, I'm in Mykonos now, and this podcast is going to be mainly about the inflation numbers that are out today and the market reaction to those numbers. Oh, by the way, just so you don't bother to put comments in the comment section, the microphone that I normally use on this podcast. In fact, uh, this is it. Uh, This was this traveling mic that I have stopped working. I don't know how I somehow broke it in my bag. uh, So I couldn't use that mic. And then the computer that I use for my podcast, the sound for some reason without that mic was really bad. So I had to switch to this Apple, which in my my, uh, other laptop that I use. And this one had uh, better uh, sound but I couldn't use the camera. I have a, an external camera that I couldn't use on this uh, Apple. So I'm just using the built-in camera. So this is the best I could do for now. So hopefully it's not too bad. And again, I'm on the road here. But we got the release of the inflation numbers for June. And there was a lot of anticipation that the CPI data would, would come in uh, good which is lower than expected. And we have had a lot of uh, better than expected CPI numbers that have come out recently. In fact, we've had a record number, especially now after today, we have the longest 
uh, streak ever of consecutive declines in inflation, at least as measured by the CPI. I think it's 27, uh, not, not, I'm not sure how many months. It's a 27-month low where we are now in year-over-year CPI. I'm not sure how long this streak has run, but I read that this is now the longest streak uh, of declining CPI. But the anticipation was that we would have a more benign number than the 0.3% that was forecast. And of course, 0.3% is not really benign. I mean, you annualize that, what is that, about 4% inflation. So it's still a pretty high number if your goal is 2%. And again, remember, when official inflation is 4%, the real rate is more like 8%. So we've got a lot of inflation here. But the actual number that we got was increase of 02 that was in line. I mean, the range was from up 0.1 to up 0.4, but 0.2 was still better than the 0.3, although it was higher than the 0.1 that we got in the prior month. So, you know, it's going in the other direction, uh, but it was still lower than expected. The year over year number also improved more than expected. It was supposed to fall to 3.1 and it fell to three. Uh, and that's, uh, versus the prior month where the year over year was four. Uh, the ex-food and energy, the so-called core, that was supposed to rise by 0.3 and it rose by 0.2. And that was uh, an improvement over the 0.4 for the prior month. And the year over year core was supposed to rise by 5%. And instead it rose by 4.8% which is an improvement too over the 5.3% for the prior month. But remember, it's the so-called core that the Fed is most concerned about. And that's what it wants to bring down to two. Well, we're barely below five. We're at 4.8. We are nowhere near the Fed's goal. Yes, we've had an improvement over the you know 9% plus, which was the, the high watermark so far for the CPI. So we have had an improvement relative to where we were then, but we haven't gone anywhere near 2%, nor do I think we're going to get to 2%. That's what the market doesn't seem to understand. And it's ironic because these better than expected inflation numbers, as I've been pointing out, are in fact a catalyst for more inflation, at least for hotter CPI numbers. So you get these better than expected CPI numbers or declining CPI numbers. They get the markets to think, okay, the Fed is done. It can ease up on the inflation fight. We don't need as many rate hikes. The Fed could cut rates sooner rather than later. And the minute the markets perceive a, a window of opportunity for the Fed to be easier in its monetary policy, you get sharp movements in the market particularly the U.S. dollar. And I talk about this in the last podcast, but the dollar is getting clobbered today. This is one of the weakest days I've seen in the dollar, certainly this year. Uh, the dollar index is down about 1.2. So it's down 1.2%. It is now at the lowest it's been since April of 2022. So what about a 15, 16 month low in the dollar index. As I'm speaking right now, the dollar index is at 100 spot 56. And I mentioned this 
in my last podcast that the dollar was very weak following the weaker than expected jobs report that we got on Friday. And now it's down again today. And oil, as I said, continues to rise. It's been creeping higher all week. It's not up dramatically today. It's up about half a buck. But we're now at 75.22. We were at $68 uh, last week. So we're seeing a nice move up. I think there's a lot of momentum. It's not just in uh, oil. Commodities across the board are having a very uh, strong day. Obviously, the precious metals having a strong day as well, especially silver. Let me pull up a, a live price there. Last I, I checked, it was up, uh, I think, better than 50 cents an ounce. Where is it now? Oh, it's not even... Uh, I'm not even seeing it on that uh, on that page. Let me let me check it. Um, silver's up 90, 96 cents, almost a dollar uh, an ounce today, above twenty four dollars. That's why some of these silver stocks that I own are up ten or eleven percent just today. But the point I'm really trying to make here is that the better than expected inflation numbers are actually a catalyst for future inflation to be higher. Anyone who is looking at the recent improvements in the CPI is basically looking in the rearview mirror. They're ignoring what's happening through the windshield, which is the dollar tanking. And in fact, I think if the dollar breaks much more, I think the dollar index is gonna make a sharp move from 100 to 90. There's some support down at 90 on the dollar index. And so I would expect that if the dollar does break about 10%, it will stop falling at least for a while at 90. I mean, if it doesn't bounce off at 90, then it's in even more trouble than I uh, suspect. I mean, it's in a lot of trouble, but you know, it should bounce off of that level just looking at a chart. But that's a big drop. That's a 10% decline. If we get a 10% decline in the dollar in a very short period of time, maybe the next month or two, that should really ignite a fire in the commodity markets, particularly in oil. I would expect the oil price to shoot above $100 a barrel if we get a 10% drop in the dollar. I also would expect gold to make a new record high. It'll probably move above $2,100 an ounce if that, in fact, does happen. But the point is, if we get this big break in the dollar, that is going to filter through to the CPI. It's going to put a lot of upward pressure on the CPI because a lot of the downward pressure has come from falling commodity prices, particularly energy prices. Why did commodity prices fall? Well, because the dollar rose as a result of anticipation of a tighter Fed fighting inflation, hiking interest rates. That brought down uh, commodities, which helped bring down uh, the CPI. But now that uh, uh, you know investors are smelling the end of the hikes and are starting to get a whiff of the cuts, the dollar is getting clobbered. And this is very inflationary because not only is it going to push up commodity prices in general, but a weaker dollar is going to push up all of our import prices. Everything we import is going to cost more. So these record trade deficits are going to go to new highs 
because the weak dollar is going to make everything we import more expensive. You know, a lot of people try to say that, well, if you have a weak currency, that will reduce your trade deficit because it'll help your exports. Well, it's not really going to help our exports because we don't export that much. I mean, we export food and things like that. But the stuff that we import, we can't produce. So it's not like we could just switch to a domestic source when the dollar goes down and imports get more expensive. We just have to pay more for those imports. So a weaker dollar is going to push up the trade deficits. Also, it's going to push up the cost of importing all that stuff, the transportation costs. So larger trade deficits, higher import prices, higher commodity prices, these are all going to put a lot of upward pressure on the CPI. So investors have it wrong. The stock market is up. It's only up about 150 points right now. It was up maybe 250, 300 earlier in the day. And by the way, it's rallied the last couple of days in anticipation of this good number. And the bond market is rising. Now we got the yields on the 10 and the 30 year back below 4%. But the yield curve is uh, uh, steepening because the 30 year is um, falling a lot less than the 10 year. But again, I think that these the bond markets got it wrong. I thought on my last podcast, maybe they were starting to figure it out. Well, maybe they haven't figured it out because they should be paying attention to the forward indicators like the dollar, uh, like gold, like oil, and not the, the lagging indicators like the CPI. Anyway, we got a break for a quick commercial. I'll be right back, so don't go away. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All right, looking again at the metals markets, gold is up $25 an ounce. We're now back above 1950 at 1956. You know, in this recent pullback, we never got below 1900. Remember, I talked about the fact that we were below 2000, and a lot of people thought that was significant because gold wasn't holding 2000. What seemed more significant to me was that it was holding 1900. So even though it was below 2000, it wasn't very far below. And we had a very big correction in these gold mining stocks, which really looks to be over. In fact, the GDX is up 5% today. The GDXJ up 5.5%. If you recall on the last podcast, I was really pounding the table on these gold stocks. Hopefully some people followed my advice and, and put some more money to work before today's rally. Although even if you missed out on that, this rally is still nothing compared to where we're going or compared to the pullback. Like if you look at the GDXJ, the 52-week high is just under 44. So even with today's rally, we're barely above 38. So that's a long way to go. Meanwhile, if you remember where this index was uh, back in 2011, and if you don't remember, I'll remind you, I'm going to go uh, look at it now. But the index was well over 100 here, 122, that's 2012, 156. That looks, no, 158, nope, 165. I keep scrolling back. 
171.88. That was the high uh, for the GDXJ. Over 10 years ago, in April of 2011, we were at just under 172. We're at 38. So that just puts in perspective how um, how much further this index could rise. Um, I hope you guys aren't hearing all these texts that are coming in on this computer. I don't know. They're annoying me. But um, so there's not many things that you can buy at a fraction of their 2011 price. I mean, think about all the inflation that has taken place. And by the way, you know, yes, gold um, in April of 2011, you know, got up to this level uh, very briefly. But gold stocks obviously were, you know, many, many times higher than they were. And gold at this price looks a lot more stable than when, than when it was in 2011, where we spiked up there. We have built this enormous base. The price of gold has been high for a long time. And um, let's see if I can get this thing to stop. So, um, I don't know where the, it's these messages that keep coming in. Um, no, I can't even, I don't even see how to get rid of them. Um, anyway, um, but so what, what, what I was, what I was trying to say is that um, we have a long way to go for um, the, the, the GDXJ to get back to where it was 12, 13 years ago, even though the price of gold is pretty much where it was back then. But the odds of a significant rally are much better given all of the time that we've now spent building this base. The reason that we have prices so much lower now than we had back then is mainly the sentiment. Back then, people were a lot more optimistic on the gold rally. A lot more people thought early in the days of QE that the gold rally would continue. And so they were buying gold stocks as a hedge. Now, they were right. They were just a decade too early because we were able to not only get away with QE1, but QE2, QE3, QE4. But there's so much more inflation in the pipeline now than there was back in 2011. Investors should be even more optimistic on gold stocks now than they were then, but they're not. They're extremely pessimistic. They're no longer worried that QE is gonna cause inflation, even though it clearly has. They've seen this surge in the CPI and they don't understand that that is the delayed consequence of the very inflation they were so worried about in 2011. They were right to be worried. They should be even more worried now, but they're not. They're complacent. And just like everybody was fooled into believing that there was no inflation, that's why we got the huge drop in gold prices and gold stocks in 2014, 2015, because by then, investors decided that the inflation they were worried about in 2011 never manifest that guys like me, we were wrong to uh, warn about inflation. That's when Paul Krugman was taking his victory lap, pointing at me and other people, 
saying, ha, ah, you know, these fools, they were thinking that QE was going to cause inflation. And look, inflation is below 2%. It was that environment that allowed gold to fall back to 1,000. And even though it's risen back up to about 2,000, the sentiment has never recovered to the level it was in 2011 because people still don't get it. And just like they thought inflation was never going to rear its head, and then when it finally did, they thought it was a good thing because it meant that we could average up the years of inflation being below 2%. And then when we got too far above 2%, everybody said, well, don't worry. It's it's all transitory. Um, now the same people are are saying, okay, well, it wasn't transitory, but don't worry, the Fed has fixed it. Yes, they were late to the game. They let the genie out of the bottle, but all we had to do was move rates up to 5% and the genie is going to go right back in the bottle. They are completely wrong on that outlook. This is just the early stages of massive inflation. Right? What we saw in 2021 or 2022, rather, was just the beginning. And anybody who believes that the fire is out just because we've got year-over-year core down to 4.9 is sadly mistaken. And this entire stock market rally is built on a false foundation. That is the belief. That is the basis for this rally that inflation is, is gone. And not only that inflation is gone, but that because it's gone, the Fed is going to be able to cut rates back down to the low levels that the markets got accustomed to ever since the 2008 financial crisis. Well, those days are gone for good. They're not coming back because we finally caught up to the inflation wave and there's no getting off it. And in fact, look at the news that came out last week about the BRIC nations. This is uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and, and China. These countries are now launching a new common currency for um, you know, trade so that they can trade with one another and use this new currency instead of the dollar. And the game changer is the new currency is going to be backed by gold. So it's not really a new currency. It's old money. It's gold as money functioning through a new currency, which the BRIC nations are creating, and they're going to use in commerce instead of the dollar. Now, I don't know the timetable when they're going to officially launch this new currency, but any currency that is pegged to gold is going to be a superior currency to the U.S. dollar, which is pegged to nothing. And, and so once this currency is out there, I expect more nations other than the BRICS to start using it, especially if they want to import what the BRICS have to export. So once this currency is out there, more and more nations and more and more private companies, that's also going to be part of it. It's going to be private companies that are going to prefer this method of payment over the U.S. dollar. And again, that's going to especially be true given the recent weaponization of the dollar, where a lot of 
people, nations will be afraid of the dollar and their vulnerability there uh, based on the whim of the U.S. Uh, to impose sanctions based on, you know, whatever it thinks uh, some country did wrong. Uh, I think you're going to see just, you know, more impetus to move into this superior currency. And it couldn't happen at a worse time for the dollar. Again, that's what people just don't get. We've got record trade deficits. We've got record budget deficits. How are we going to finance these record twin deficits? Financing them is impossible. The only thing that we can rely on or method of financing is going to be inflation. The Fed is going to be printing a lot more money to monetize all of this debt. Otherwise, interest rates are going to be prohibitively high. That is another fact that everybody is missing when they are just looking at these um, CPI numbers. But also, I think that the markets, again, the stock market in particular, is setting itself up for a 1987-style crash, a big decline in a single day when investors wake up to reality. They've been living in this fantasy, the fantasy of inflation coming down. This uh, fantasy is going to be pierced, I think, by the falling dollar and by the effect that's going to have on the bond market. Today's rally notwithstanding, the bond market is breaking down. And I think it's going to continue to break down, especially if the dollar is going down, commodities are going up. Because remember, if you're a foreign investor and you own U.S. treasuries, you own dollars. And, and so if you are getting Forex losses, and remember, there were a lot of people who were optimistic on the dollar. Everybody's been bullish on the dollar. All of these theories, dollar is the safe haven. People are going to buy the dollar. The Fed is hawkish. The Fed is tough. So there probably are a number of international investors who got into treasuries as a play on the dollar, not just to get yield on the treasury, but as a way to invest in the dollar to benefit from an appreciating dollar. Well, if the dollar starts to depreciate instead, then a lot of people are either going to dump those treasuries or they're going to have to hedge their foreign currency risk <coughs> by shorting uh, dollars, by selling dollars to hedge their treasuries. But that just puts more downward pressure on the dollar, which puts more downward pressure on treasuries. And a weak dollar puts upward pressure on commodity prices and the CPI, which also puts downward pressure on treasuries. So I think that what's going to happen is that the bond market is going to follow the dollar lower. Gold's going to move higher. And these trends are going to continue until the stock market can no longer ignore what's going on. I mean, right now, investors are just wedded to this false paradigm that can't happen. It's going to take something to shake confidence. I thought maybe looking at the way the markets reacted last week to the jobs numbers, that maybe the confidence was shaking. Apparently not yet in the stock market. Now, maybe we'll see. We have a few more hours to trade today. 
maybe we'll get a reversal. I mean, the Dow is only up 140 points right now, so it's off the highs. The NASDAQ earlier today hit a new high for the year, and it's still up there. It's up 1.28%. So there's no sign of uh, any kind of turn going on in the NASDAQ. But these are the stocks that investors should be selling the most. But they're still buying these stocks because they're more interest rate sensitive. And this shows you that the markets are anticipating a drop in interest rates. And they anticipate that because they believe the Fed has succeeded in bringing down inflation. And that has set the stage for these rate cuts. And everybody is just trying to get in front of that by piling into these tech stocks. Well, in mass, they're going to be getting rid of these stocks when they discover that that is not the case, that the dollar is falling and that inflation is taking off. I mean, the, the low inflation rates that we had were the aberration. It really is amazing that we went over a decade with these sub 2% inflation numbers. It lulled a lot of people and central bankers into a false sense of complacency. And a lot of people expect those days to return. They still don't understand how much of an aberration that was. And they don't understand the extenuating circumstances that made that possible. It was the voracious, uh, 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 voracious appetite for U.S. dollars by the BRICS. By China, by, by India, by Saudi Arabia, by Russia, Japan, which is not a brick, but a lot of these countries were gobbling up dollars. That enabled us to export all of the inflation that we were creating. We're not going to be able to do that anymore. We're going to be re-importing that inflation as our trading partners send it back to us. <clears throat> they do that by, by spending their dollars, by taking the dollars that they had in U.S. Treasuries and buying stuff, whatever we got. They're just going to buy it and they're going to bid up the price. Oh, by the way, before I forget, I didn't mention this on the last podcast. But even though that the job number was a big disappointment, the major contributor to jobs, I forget the number, I don't have it in front of me anymore, but it was government jobs. Government jobs was the biggest component of that weaker than expected report. And these government jobs are particularly inflationary. Why? Because when you put people on the government payroll, the government has to pay their salaries. Well, where does the government get the money to pay their salaries? It prints it. It runs larger deficits. That's where the money is coming from. You know, these, these workers aren't generating profits. You know, they're, they're just expenses that the government has and the government has to pay their salaries. The other problem is they don't produce anything. These government workers are not adding to the pool of goods uh, that people can consume, but they're going to subtract from that pool because they're going to take their government paychecks and spend them. They're going to buy stuff that they didn't help produce with those paychecks. So it's bigger budget deficits. It's more money printing. Uh, it's more upward pressure on on prices. That is what everybody is is missing. They're missing uh, the deficits are you know the, the budget deficits blowing out of control, uh, two trillion dollars, and all the upward pressure on inflation because they're focusing on 
the improvement. Sure, we are at 9% year-over-year CPI. Okay, so we've had an improvement. We've gone down to a little bit below 5 or 4, whatever. People are focusing on that small improvement without putting everything in its proper context and recognizing the ebb and flows that are likely to uh, define this new inflation wave. Because remember, the Fed didn't even see this wave coming, right? And so now they think, okay, it's done, or people think it's done. They have no clue because they don't understand where it came from. Again, they're still fixated on the supply chain uh, bottlenecks from COVID. They still think, aha, you know, it was all about COVID. It was a one-off thing. And now everything is fixed. You know, the Fed raised rates. By the way, the, the Bank of Canada raised rates today. They're now up at 5%, but they've still got a ways to go. They've got a big inflation problem in Canada as well. Uh, but again, this also puts more pressure on the dollar as other countries start pushing up their rates. The difference between the rates in the U.S., and other rates are not as great. Uh, and so there's even less incentive from a yield perspective uh, to hold to hold on to, to US dollars. But the, the, the bigger picture, again, is that we're not going back to those sub 2% days because this is not just about COVID. COVID really you know, was kind of like the spark that, that lit the powder keg. And I talked about that in real time. I talked about the absurdity of that monetary and fiscal policy combination in early 2020. I was one of the few people who was warning about inflation early in COVID when everybody else was talking deflation. Everybody was saying, oh, demand's really going down because of COVID, because everybody's staying at home. I was a guy that pointed out, no, it's not going down. Demand is going up because everybody is getting their stimulus money. People have more money to spend during COVID than they had before COVID. But I also pointed out the fact that we weren't producing. So supply was going down as demand was going up. So that really just was it lit the fuse. But the fuse was long because it's been building since uh, 2009, 2010, QE1. I mean, it actually started before then, but it, it really kicked into a higher gear. It's just that we never experienced the consequences in consumer prices. I mean, we experienced it in asset prices. I mean, those prices went up, stocks, bonds, real estate, other collectibles. We saw it in global macroeconomic imbalances. We saw it in debt levels. We saw an explosion of debt, corporate debt, government debt, uh, consumer debt, student loans, credit card debt, auto debt. So all of those consequences of inflation were there. It's just that nobody cared about it. Nobody worried about it because it wasn't showing up in the CPI or the personal consumption expenditure index, whatever government metric the Fed claimed it relied on. So as long as the inflation wasn't there, nobody cared about it, but they should have cared about it. They should have been worrying about it. And because nobody worried about it, it got so out of control. The Fed is hopelessly behind the curve. It's impossible to catch up. I mean, it could, but it would cause a depression, not a recession. In order to really put this inflation genie back in the bottle, not only do we need higher rates, but we need 
huge cuts in government spending. The problem is we have an economy that depends. It's a phony economy, depending on that government spending. But if you take that government spending away, then that phony economy that's been built on top of it is going to collapse. And that is going to bring about a depression-like environment, especially when the government tries to react to that, which, of course, it can't do if the Fed is actually going to fight inflation, which is why I know that it's not going to happen. The Fed is not going to make that choice. It's not going to choose depression over inflation. It's going to go for inflation. And then it's going to make excuses about why the inflation isn't its fault. It's going to point fingers. Maybe it's even going to point fingers at these BRIC nations, right? How dare they come up with a new currency and back it by gold, right? It's their fault. They're the ones that are doing it. Ignoring the fact that we were the impetus for those decisions. It was the it was our debasement of the dollar and our weaponization of the dollar that were the motivating factors behind those changes. So the world is reacting to our mistakes. But of course, our politicians will blame the world for that reaction and vilify them. That's another reason that they're going to choose inflation, because if they deliberately you know, crash the economy, which would be the better policy, if they substantially cut government spending or increase taxes. I mean, they could also have substantial middle class tax hikes. But of course, that would crush the economy, too, because the middle class can barely survive the taxes they're paying now. If they had to pay significantly higher taxes to cover the government spending, uh, everything would implode because nobody would have any money left over to buy anything. Everything would be sent to the government in taxes. So if we try to balance the books, either through spending cuts or tax hikes, then everything collapses and the collapse will be immediate and it will be obvious who caused it. Even if it's a good thing to do, all of the politicians are going to get thrown out. The voters are going to take out their wrath on the incumbents and the incumbents know that. So there's no way they are going to opt for that. They are going to go for inflation, especially since they have no idea of knowing just how bad the inflation is going to get because it builds up over time. It's not like the depression that can hit immediately. So they are going to um, pursue those inflationary policies in order to prevent something that they perceive as much worse from happening much sooner. But in reality, the inflation is actually an even bigger problem than the one they're too afraid uh, to, to unleash. But at least from our perspective as investors, since we know the choices that the government is going to make, since we know uh, which fork in the road they're going to take, they're going to take the inflation fork, we know how to position ourselves. We know that we want to be out of U.S. dollars, which is what I've been doing for a long time, because I knew the fork that the government was going to take long before we even arrived at it, before people even realized that there was going to be a fork. I knew that it was there, and I knew which direction uh, the cowards in Washington and at the Fed would choose. And so we have to have a portfolio that reflects that, which is out of the U.S. dollar. And yes, even though the dollar is at a 15-month low, the dollar index is still above 100. That's still high. It was down around 70 at the lows in 2008 before the financial crisis. I think we're going to be way below 70 a few years from now. So I think 100 is still a high point to get rid of your dollars. Gold at 1950 is still cheap 
anything below 2000, I think is a steal because I think once it really moves above 2100, we'll probably never see a sub $2,000 gold price again. In fact, it's probably going to, uh, you know, have a huge move up and put a lot of distance between the price of gold and 2000, especially if the BRIC countries launch this currency and back it by gold, because then they're going to have to buy more gold to back their currency. And to the extent that this new currency becomes more popular and is more widely used, then in order to create more units, they're going to need more gold. And to get the gold, they have to buy it. You see, that's the difference between a fiat currency, which can be created at will, and a legitimate country currency, which is constricted by the gold that backs it up. So when the BRIC nations launch this new currency, if it's successful, they can't just create it out of thin air like the Fed creates dollars. They're going to need gold for each new unit. And, you know, they're not a mining operation. They're not mining the gold. They're going to have to buy the gold that has already been mined. And so that's going to put even more upward pressure. So gold has a long way to go up. And again, I think the emerging markets are a sleeper trade here. This weakness in the dollar, which is just getting started, this, I believe, is going to really uh, ignite a boom in the emerging market stocks. I mean, people have been piling into these tech stocks uh, and ignoring the emerging markets, just like they've been ignoring uh, gold. Uh, you know, I have an emerging market fund as well. I think that if you're a speculative investor, again, the emerging markets have more risk than the developed markets. But I think you can contrast that with a lot more upside. And you always want to gauge your upside potential versus your downside risk. As long as you're comfortable with the risk, if there's a lot more upside than downside, then it's a risk you want to take. And I think if you're a risk-oriented investor, uh, that emerging markets are an incredible opportunity. You can look at the Euro-Pacific Emerging Market Fund, read the prospectus. You can get information on it on our website at Europac. <coughs> Excuse me, still have this cough. At Europac.com, we've got all the websites up there. You can learn about them. You can buy that fund as well on... <coughs> Excuse me, on the discount brokerage uh, platforms, no load, or you can work with my advisors at Euro Pacific Asset Management or the ones at the Euro Pacific Group at Alliance Global Partners. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. I'm going to do one more, I think, at the end of the week, uh, probably, I'm guessing, on Sunday uh, to kind of wrap up what happened during the week. And there's some other topics that I kind of have on the back burner that I wanted to discuss that I, I, I didn't want to devote uh, or talk about on today's podcast, but I'm going to get to those topics on, on my next podcast. So anyway, anyway, bye for now. And uh, thanks for putting up with uh, any of the, the technical issues uh, on this live, live episode. Take care.